0: November 13, 1974, seemed to be a completely normal day for Ronnie DeFeo Jr. He ate dinner with his large family, his dad, Ronnie Sr., and mom, Louise, as well as his four siblings. As everyone settled down for the evening, DeFeo Jr. turned on a war movie, Castle Keep, and had a few drinks and was allegedly shooting heroin as well. As he got ready to head to work, he heard the toilet flush and saw his 12-year-old brother Mark's wheelchair sitting outside the bathroom door, so assumed it was him and kept getting ready for work. He headed out for work fairly early that morning, around 4, 4, 440 in the morning, maybe having had trouble sleeping, But nonetheless, he left his sleepy home in the quiet village of Amityville, New York, just about an hour outside the busy bustle of New York City, and drove into his grandfather's Buick dealership around six in the morning. Not really feeling the work scene that day, Junior, as we'll call him from here forward, gave his girlfriend of roughly six months a call. He told his girlfriend, Mindy, that he'd be leaving work early and wanted to meet up with her. And so around 12 p.m., that's exactly what he did. As he was on his way to see her, he passed a good friend and drinking buddy, Bobby Kelsky. So they turned around and pulled over for a little attaboy chat, making plans to meet up at the local bar, Henry's Pub, a little bit later. This is a place that they were both seen together quite often. And Henry's was only a little bit down the road from the DeFeo house, just a short walk for Junior. After a bit of Christmas shopping and hanging around with Mindy, Junior began to call his family home. Now, why? I'm not entirely sure, because from what I understand, Junior didn't really have a great relationship with his parents, and he was kind of known to be a hoodlum. He was kicked out of his middle school. He was then sent to a private school. He was kicked out of there, told he couldn't come back the following year, went to Amityville High School after that. And he was just kind of like he was a no-good kind of kid from what I understand. And he even tried to, his dad tried to get him into the service, but it seemed like someone higher up in his family, a grandfather on his mom's side actually paid someone off to keep him out of the military. So it's not entirely understood to me why he would be calling his family because it kind of sounds like he's just checking in on them. And that doesn't really make sense to me. Anyway, though, no one answered after multiple attempts and Completely unrelated, not showing any concern or anything for them, he decided to head back to meet up with Bobby and promised Mindy he'd see her later at about 7.30 or so later that night, except he never made it back to her because on November 13th, 1974, Ronnie DeFeo Jr. sat down at his favorite bar, Henry's Pub in Amityville, New York. It was just after 4 p.m. And after a few drinks, he got up and left saying he'd be back shortly. Well, just about after 6 p.m., he came running back into the pub completely out of breath and shouted to his friend Bobby that his parents were dead. Ronnie's parents had been shot. I'm your host, Catherine, and you're listening to Murder and Mediumship. If you're catching this episode tonight on October 24th, 2022, then you still have time to meet up with us tonight for our Patreon-exclusive interview and episode with paranormal pioneers Ed and Lorraine Warren. We'll be connecting to their spirits on the other side, if they're willing to chat, of course. And if you haven't already caught on, today's episode is about Amityville murders, not so much the paranormal horror story that followed for the Lutz family. Next week, I'll be covering that part of the Amityville saga after connecting with Ed and Lorraine this evening. Don't you love Halloween time? If you hear this episode long after its premiere, then know you can always join Patreon and gain access to previous Patreon-exclusive interviews. Readings still remain at 15% off through Halloween. Just use code SPOOKYSEASON to book. And I cannot wait to read for some of my favorite listeners. So let's crack in to the Amityville murder. After Junior came barreling into the bar, screaming about his parents being dead, a group of regulars followed him back to his home that he shared with his family, again, just about a quarter of a mile from the pub. And as they pulled up, they could hear the family dog Shaggy, a guard dog barking like crazy as he was inside the home tied to the kitchen door. I just wanted to say here, and this may be inappropriate, but the image that I get of these men running out of a bar to go see what's going on, like, can we not be calling people who are probably already inebriated to go see what's happening at a murder scene? Like, it just, I I feel like someone should have quickly run for the authorities. But anyway, the group of regulars followed him back to his home, and Bobby, the same Bobby that he had run into earlier on the road, Ran upstairs to the master bedroom where he saw Ronald DeFeo Sr. and his wife Louise both laying face down in their bed. Ronald had what looked like a bullet hole in his back and a trail of dried blood creeping down from it. Louise lay with her back bare and a large blanket covering her body. Bobby assumed that she too was no longer living. Now, no one really talks about this that I've seen in my research, and I know there's a documentary that I did not watch on this. However, what I would like to say is that. Did anyone find it interesting that she was covered? I just, I thought that was interesting that her bullet hole, I don't believe was visible just from like walking past her and seeing the blanket. So I wonder if the shooter actively covered her up after. Regardless, before anyone starts thinking, like I just said, oh my God, why wouldn't they just call 911? 911 had literally just been created. It was a really new system in 1974. And we'll get to that because someone does call. As Bobby ducked outside to grab some air after the horrific scene that he had encountered, another friend, John Altieri, went upstairs to search the rest of the rooms. He had the unfortunate circumstance of finding Mark and John, Junior's 12 and 9 year old brothers, also face down on their beds, shot to death. He came outside to see Junior crying and punching the car with his fist. His friends insisted on calling someone to come to the scene to be with Junior and to maybe offer some more assistance, so, Jr. asked him to call his grandfather, Michael Briganti Sr., his mom's dad, allegedly the same person who kept him out of the military. Another friend, Joseph Jesuit, was on the phone with a 911 dispatcher trying to get them to understand that an entire family had been shot and that they needed law enforcement immediately. After much confusion, dispatch called over to Amityville Police Department who radioed Officer Kenneth Gregoski, a nearby officer who was the first one on the scene. Now, Officer Gregorsky went inside the DeFeo home and confirmed that there were indeed four bodies within the home, all laying in their beds and called Amityville headquarters to report back. Now, at this point, he's calling from the DeFeo's kitchen and Ronnie Jr. is sitting in a chair at the kitchen table listening to this conversation. As he's on the phone with him, Jr. informs the officer that he also had two sisters, Alice and Dawn. So, At about that time, Officer Edwin Tindall, the second officer on the scene, arrives and goes upstairs to further investigate. And that's when he finds Alice, 13, and Dawn, 18, also deceased in their rooms. Now, Amityville was a small and quiet town. Law enforcement was far from prepared for something of this caliber, as evidenced by the one and only detective for the homicide department arriving with his homicide squad. This was Detective Pat Camaroto. As he made his way into the home, he found Junior being questioned by another detective in the kitchen of the DeFeo home. Junior was telling the authorities that he suspected Tony Mazio, a mafia hitman who was a friend of the family's at one time, but had since had a falling out with Junior. And maybe that was his reason for killing the entire family. This may have made sense to some, though. It's not as crazy as you would think, because most of the victims had been found face down, I'm sorry, all of them had been found face down with their hands extended above their heads in what was known to be common with mob killings. And neighbors knew that the DeFeo family had connections with the mafia. In fact, Ronnie Sr.'s Uncle Peter was a captain in the Vito Genovese crime family. The use of the mafia and their protection was screamed at various people, both by Ronnie Jr. and Sr. They were not shy about throwing these connections around. As all of this unfolded, Mindy arrived late into the evening just before they took Junior into the station for more questioning. So as she arrives after countless attempts to reach him who failed to show up for their 730 date, by now detectives have separated Bobby and Junior who were initially being interrogated together and had also turned the neighbor's kitchen into a temporary headquarters from which they could talk to Ronnie and a few others while allowing police to investigate the crime scene itself. At this time, officers wanted to get Junior down to the police station, as his story was already starting to have holes in it, and he already had a rap sheet that included grand larceny and robbery. Not only that, but he had a reputation in the community for being a drug user, LSD and heroin being his drugs of choice. He wasn't someone that was really readily trusted, if you catch my drift. So before being escorted to the first precinct around 8 p.m., He willingly gave them a written statement that he had been at home the night before until about 4.40 in the morning when he had left early for work in Brooklyn, as we already stated. He recounted to the authorities how he had seen his younger brother Mark's wheelchair in front of the bathroom floor, excuse me, bathroom door, and had heard the flushing noise. The investigation of the home itself seemed to have mostly taken place in the rooms where the bodies were found. And a lot of people kind of point to this as not being a very thorough investigation because not much else had been searched. Even Junior's room wasn't thoroughly searched because no one was found in there, though so they did confiscate two boxes that were taken into evidence that identified types of ammunition, one of them being 35 caliber bullets. Police also recovered several guns that hadn't appeared to have been shot in a very long time, but they were taken into evidence. What they didn't immediately tell the public was that they also seized a revolver, two pistols, two rifles, and a shotgun. From various rooms in the house, and I believe most of them belonged to gun enthusiast Ronnie Jr. No shell casings were recovered from the scene, which did further perplex police, but the murder weapon hadn't been found yet either. Once they were down at the station, a family friend and attorney whistling showed up letting the authorities know that he was there to see his client, Ronnie DeFeo Jr the police sent him to another precinct and gave him the runaround. They told him that Suffolk County had it now, and they were basically just making sure that he'd be running circles and arguing with authorities late into the night to keep him away from Junior. Evidently, authorities had also asked to keep Junior separated from his grandfather and anyone else in the family who tried to speak to him or help him. Interestingly enough, though, the Suffolk County Police Department had just been exposed by a local newspaper, Newsday, as being incredibly corrupt and, and using illegal tactics in their interrogations that were absolutely forms of police brutality. Their denial of, represent- of representation to Junior was absolutely illegal and not shocking, according to many people who were involved in this case. At one point, still without representation, Junior was told they were going to do a paraffin test to check for gunshot residue. At this time, Junior asked for a lawyer and a lawyer was not presented. He's still not under arrest, okay? He again asked for Richard Hartman, this time someone by name, his previous representation in his grand larceny charge, and another friend of the family. Hartman was never notified, and still Junior had no attorney present. After the paraffin test around 9 p.m., they transferred him to the fourth precinct, where he again asked for his lawyer. Back at the DeFeo house, the rumors about the abuse in the family and the drug use was starting to be discussed, and it was evidently known within the community that Ronnie Sr. beat his wife and his kids, and according to Junior, he had to step in multiple times to take the ass-kicking from his mom instead so that she wouldn't have to. One of his uncles was sharing with a detective about Junior's regular drug use as another family member hushed him and warned him to keep family business to themselves, at this time, Junior was sticking to his allegation of the murder being mob related. Still, his attorney was being denied access to him. A friend of Junior, Stephen Hicks, came forward to the police and told them that Junior had recently brought a newly purchased 35 caliber Marlin rifle to his house to show it off. And while he was there, he'd accidentally fired it into the living room floor, which just like blows my mind because if you're going to have guns, please be safe with them. We're not going to get into anything political here. No one cares what my gun beliefs are or are not. But if you're going to have a gun, don't be shooting it into people's floors because you're stupid with it. Anyway, I digress. Fortunately for police, that bullet had not yet been recovered. Now, Dr. Adelman, the deputy chief medical examiner in his examination of the bodies found that they had all been shot and killed with a 35 caliber rifle, much like the one Hicks was talking about. So a team went to the Hicks house in hopes of recovering the bullet after a failed attempt by a detective to crawl under the house to find it himself. What they found was a perfect match to the bullets used to kill the DeFeo family. Still, he held on to his innocence as his walls crumbled around him. Mindy told authorities that Junior was still abusing drugs, mostly heroin and LSD. His probation officer confirmed that of the 15 random urine tests administered between June and October of that year... Two had traces of quinine, a substance used to dilute heroin, and he remained a primary suspect in the robbery of his grandfather's dealership. That is a heist that I did not get into for this, but essentially he and a friend had stolen money from his grandfather's dealership that they were supposed to be depositing into a bank, and then they claimed that they were robbed, although they never showed up to give statements at the dealership, at the police station, even though they were supposed to, and... His father, Jr.'s father, was highly suspicious that it was him. I imagine the grandfather was highly suspicious. And this was like typical behavior for Ronnie DeFeo Jr. So no one really was surprised by his robbing his grandfather's dealership. It was this that kind of seemed more shocking. But on November 14th, 1974, authorities officially arrested Ronald DeFeo Jr. for the murder of the DeFeo family. He had told police that he left his home around four, four forty in the morning of the thirteenth, and in doing so, he actually placed himself right at the scene of the murders during the murders, despite saying he was innocent. Multiple neighbors heard the dog barking like crazy between 2:30 and 3:30 that morning. And according to the medical examiner, the family appeared to have been dead since at the very latest 7 a.m. At the latest 7 a.m. Thanks to neighbors, that time was narrowed down to about 3 a.m. And Ronnie put himself at the house during the murders. While he confessed in an eight-page written statement, every oral statement he gave contradicted the next. His statements remained considerably vague and then would be littered with occasional graphic details. Most importantly, he was able to draw a map of where he had tossed the rifle into the river near his house before driving to Brooklyn for work. On his drive to work, he had decided to take a different exit than normal and emptied the contents of a pillowcase into a storm drain. The pillowcase had contained the shell casings, bloody clothes, a rifle carrying case, and a few boxes of live ammunition. All of it was found by detectives exactly where he said it would be, at the intersection of Seaview Avenue and 96th Street in Brooklyn, New York. He had essentially murdered his entire family, cleaned up, trimmed his beard, grabbed a shower, packed a pillowcase full of evidence, and left. They had him. A few things still didn't quite make sense, though. Outside of his forever-changing story, what he did have to offer police was solid evidence that took them directly to the weapons used in commission of the crime, evidence taken from the scene. Junior had claimed to have acted alone, but then in other statements said that he had an unnamed accomplice. The rifle showed no evidence of having used a silencer either, so how had no one heard the gun going off and made it out alive in the family? How had neighbors not heard the gun outside of the house, especially if they could hear the dog? The family's system was clear of any drugs as well and showed no evidence of any needle marks. On November 18, 1974, the DeFeo family was laid to rest in St. Charles Cemetery in Pinetown, New York. Roughly 300 mourners surrounded the site, each holding red carnations. The service itself was held at St. Martin of Tours Roman Catholic Church, where nearly 1,000 people showed up in support of and to show love to the DeFeo family. Ronnie DeFeo Jr. made no request to be present at the funeral. However, during the service, he was being brought before Judge Ernest Signorelli for his arraignment. The judge noted his physical appearance and ordered a medical exam immediately. Police officers claimed that all of the bruises apparent on him were old and from a fist fight he'd gotten into with his father days before the murders, while witnesses argued that the bruising was fresh since being taken into police custody, something Ronnie would later testify to. The beatings he took from the police before his confessions during his 21-hour interrogation with no food, no water, no bathroom allowances, and no representation, despite multiple times asking for it. He was arraigned arraigned on one count of second-degree murder for the shooting death of his younger brother, Mark DeFeo. His trial began on October 14, 1975. His defense attorney, William Weber, asserted an insanity defense. Junior claimed to have killed his family in self-defense because he heard their voices plotting against him. The defense psychiatrist, Daniel Schwartz, obviously supported this insanity plea, while the prosecutor's psychiatrist, Dr. Harold Zolan, cited Junior's frequent LSD and heroin use, but not leaving out his antisocial personality disorder. However, he alleged that despite this, Junior was very much aware of what he was doing the night that he killed his entire family. On November 21st, 1975, he was found guilty of six counts of second degree murder and sentenced on December 4th, 1975 to six sentences of 25 years to life. Every single parole attempt was denied during that time, and so he was held at Sullivan Correctional Facility in Fallsburg, New York until his death on March 12th, 2021. There are a lot of theories about whether or not he acted alone or if demons made him do it, did he hear voices in his head, so on and so forth, and we didn't get too much into the abuse that his family seemed to suffer at the hands of Ronnie DeFeo Sr., however, I think that's something that contributed to this as well was the crushing weight of the pressure of being a member of the DeFeo family. However, it's my feeling that much of what happened that evening was part of a hallucination and an alternate reality that Ronnie Jr. lived in. I do believe in paranormal existences, obviously. However, I also believe that many times we see someone's mental health as something paranormal just because it's a better story. I know some people believe that Dawn was involved, but truthfully, I don't think she was. I believe he may have believed it, but that she wasn't. I think he was likely misdiagnosed and that he was experiencing a psychotic break as a culmination of drug use and PTSD from his abusive family and even from his own pre-existing mental health conditions. PTSD wasn't something that was diagnosable in the early 1970s, and it's something that we still grapple to understand today. The second part of this tragedy is where the system failed someone with clear mental health issues. And something that also bothers me, most people are more familiar with the horror series that surrounds Amityville than what happened to the DeFeo family in November of 74. And I want to just just for a moment, when I say that they failed someone with clear mental health issues, I mean that he should have been taken into a facility that could have more or less catered to his mental health needs rather than just being put into prison. But It's neither here nor there, honestly. So with that being said, next week, we'll be learning more about the haunting of Amityville since that episode will drop on Halloween and my hot take on what I feel was legitimate haunting versus Hollywood BS. So thanks for listening as usual. And I'll be back on Wednesday for another segment of Coffee and Conjurings. Y'all enjoy the rest of spooky season.